Hello and welcome back to the Evolving Podcast, Evolving Hockey Podcast. <laughs> My name is Sean, and I'm joined by the Evolving Wild Twins, Josh and Luke Youngren. Sorry, we took a week off, and maybe I I lost my rhythm a bit there. Uh, yeah, what's up, Sean? And yeah, what's going on? So we just had a, a great discussion with Charlie O'Connor, who has covered the Philadelphia Flyers for a long time now. Uh, we had a great discussion revolving around um, more of the pleasantries of the Flyers this season. Um, I think it was a really good discussion. We dove into a lot of different topics, uh, including the twins' love for music and Charlie's music. <laughs> Might have a spin-off um, episode in the in the summer. You guys could just start your own podcast. We yeah. could. You could do the off- twins and Charlie music <laughs> podcast. Yeah, say, I mean, say goodbye to me. Yeah, I, I I think so. We we didn't. Um, I if if people have been following hockey today uh, over the last couple of weeks, there's been uh, a lot of really terrible news out of coming out of around the Hockey Canada 2018 uh, incident, and it was announced today that the the names of the players that were charged with, I believe, it was sexual assault. Um, and so that just came out. Charlie's been covering uh, specifically uh, with with the Flyers around Carter Hart. Uh, we actually didn't get to talk, or we didn't get to talking about that in the episode with Charlie, um, but we wanted to talk about it up front because it is. Uh, it's a horrible thing that's going on. Uh, and so, yeah, the, there's Carter Hart, Michael McLeod, Dylan Dubé, Cal Foote, and uh, Alex Formanton, I believe, are all now formally charged and are have kind of a, um, uh, have, I guess, more or less turned themselves in, I believe, or are in the process Alex of Alex Formanton had already turned himself in. Yeah. He came back from Europe, and I think the remainder are being are on their way of turning themselves yeah. in. Yeah, and so we wanted to... I guess we wanted to just take the time to to link to. Uh, um, we're gonna have it in the show notes as well, but we uh, really, you know, we recommend or not recommend, but if you have the ability, uh, uh, there's there's a link to the um, uh, Philadelphia the W A O R W O A R the Philadelphia Center Against Sexual Violence, um, and it'll be linked in the in the show notes. We'll be donating as well. Uh, so we just wanted to put that out there that we that this is going on. Um, Charlie is now with uh, P H L Y. Which is a uh, he was formerly with the Athletic, but he's writing for uh, an all, kind of a, a uh, all sports, uh, I guess, in Philadelphia site now. Um, and so we'll have some links there as well. But if, if uh, he just had a uh, you know story covering everything that's been going on, um, but you know, please consider uh, donating to W A O W O A R in in the I guess in the meantime. Yeah. So or volunteer or take yes. some yeah. sort of um, initiative. In yeah. Some sense. Yeah. So it's just really it's. It, we, you know, it's been going on for a long time, and it's really horrible news. Um, it's been a terrible situation for. I mean, con- it yeah. sucks. But yeah, I, I think the episode uh, ended up being. We got to some some pretty interesting topics around the Flyers. They've been a really interesting team this year. Um, you know, and there's been some really interesting players that I think that uh, you know we all have talked about before. So we, it's really great to get kind of Charlie's thoughts on the change with Philadelphia. Um, you know, with some of the individual players and kind of where they've come. You know, where they were and where they got have gone this season and kind of where the Flyers look to be in the future uh going forward so um yeah check it out uh stick around uh and uh yeah we'll uh hopefully be back i i think we've had some scheduling issues and some weird stuff come up i think the last couple of weeks a little bit most of that's on luke and i but sean sean had one or two that were a little bit uh you know um that that caused a problem so we're hoping to get back after the all-star break to a more regular uh routine uh for the rest of the season so um yeah thanks for listening and hope you enjoy charlie Welcome back to the Evolving Hockey Podcast, and we have our first returning guest with us. I believe that is, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Our first returning guest, Charlie O'Connor, who is now with PHLY. You guys don't don't just say Philly? P-H-L-Y no, no. It, Sports? We have been told to do it in call letters. That is the, the, the nomenclature they want us to push. That's oh, the branding. Okay. Well, he's with PHLY Sports now. Uh, he's their head uh, Flyers writer, uh, so still covering the Flyers. He's been covering the Flyers since back with SB Nation. Is that as far back as with Broad Street Hockey? Yeah. Um, so legendary uh, uh, Flyers writer at this point who <laughs> um, recently had a trip canceled when Carter Gauthier 
got <laughs> traded <laughs> just before his trip to Boston. I recently, I don't know if you heard about this, Charlie. I recently had uh, a weekend trip canceled as well. Uh, my trip to Seattle got canceled with uh, five hours remaining before I would have got charged for my hotel. So luckily I didn't get any uh, charges, but recently I had trip uh, hockey trip uh, canceled. So I feel you there. Um, but for very less exciting reasons. Yes. Um, yeah. I was, so we are... I was going up to do another feature on Cutter Gauthier, top <laughs> flyers prospect. <laughs> then four days before I was about to leave, the flyers traded Cutter Gauthier. So there was no real reason to do that story anymore. Aside from if I wanted to do a story on the crazy flyers fans who showed up to a teenager's college game to boo him and hold up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't, some pe- I don't know. Yeah, but that was truly nuts. Yeah, that was. I was like, I saw that those pictures. I was like, hold, is is what's happening here really what is happening? Like, I was like, are, is that a real picture? I was like, that's that actually happened. I was, I could not believe some people are just, yeah. I don't. Let's just say that's a lot. Yeah, yeah, some some fans <laughs> are across the line. I'll, I'll just say that. I think we had you on. I was looking at this because I was, you know, in preparation for for our, our very special guest Charlie, who's one of our favorite people in hockey. Um, we we had him on in April of 2022, which feels like not that. I mean that that's almost two years ago now, and it's which is just kind of yeah, insane. I remember I looked through and we talked kind of about your your history. I think we've uh, if people remember that I would. You know, maybe we could uh, promote that that episode again if they want to hear, you know, your history or whatever, right? But we've kind of all been like Charlie's been doing this for longer than any of us have, have been doing it. He was back when it was, you know, the Wild West, if you will, of uh, of stats on Twitter. Um, and I I do remember that at the time we we talked a lot about the your history and I think just analytics and kind of the blogging and the changing in the hockey stats world uh, overall um, because the Flyers season that season was not good and it was uh, it was kind of funny yeah. that I was thinking it's <laughs> it like. Rough. Yeah, yeah, I think I noted in the podcast. I didn't actually, full disclosure, go back and listen to the whole thing just to see what we, you know, we covered. So I, I hope that we don't uh, retread too much. But I was kind of, it's kind of a, f- a funny turn of events for the Flyers this season where um, they kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, and this is, I think, Ben, maybe like one of the big stories in the NHL is just like, you know, I, I think that it was right, right after a couple months after we did the the podcast, they they hired Tortorello. Um, I believe was that in the summer? Is that when it was in twenty twenty two? Yes. So the Tortorella hire was in the summer of 2022. Yes, that that would be the time frame. Because yeah. last summer was the summer when they fired. Well, they fired Chuck Fletcher in March, and then they made the announcements about Danny Briere and Keith Jones in May of 2023. But yes, 2022, the summer of 2022 was the John Tortorella hire. Yeah, and I guess I guess off the bat, you know, just to kind of get into the to their season, this and, and kind of what's been so surprising is I'm kind of just curious your maybe just high level takes. Like a lot of people are like, oh, it's all John Tortorella, like he's clear Jack Adams, like it's it's all coaching. But also, I think there's been kind of some very interesting players that have developed for the Flyers. Um, and I, I'm kind of curious if you maybe just like kind of have a couple like bullets on maybe what your opinion is on what has changed since that kind of horrendous 21-22 season into this season. Um, is it coaching? Is it players? Is it kind of a combination of everything or everything else or i think it's a combination of a lot of things i I do believe that some of the flyers players were from a true talent standpoint better than we thought they were and i think a lot of that does stem from and you know I think John Tortorella has done a really good job this year getting the most out of town on hand it's worth remembering though that the coaching that the flyers had before john tortorella was not good at all. And I think yeah. that played into guys playing under their true talent level. Perfect example being Travis Konecki, who has what appears to be a breakout season in 2019, 2020. He's nearly a point per game guy. He's in his early twenties. You think, okay, this guy's legit. Then the next two seasons, he grades out, frankly, somewhere between mediocre and outright bad. He he's not, he's not driving play. He's not scoring his, his, shot just goes and falls off a cliff. He just can't finish on any of his chances. And some of that is on the player, to be sure. But I think, you know, based on me being around the team, Elaine Vigneault was the coach of the team in, in 1920, and he did a good job that year. I have gotten the sense that once the pandemic hit, Elaine Vigneault was just a different coach. And by different, I mean a significantly worse coach. <laughs> and I do think that 
the poor coaching work that was done in Philadelphia during that shortened season, the uh, I think it was like a 56 or 54 game season, whatever it was in 2021. And then the following year, which uh, Vino was fired midway through the season in December, and then they had Mike Yo take over on an interim basis. The coaching in those two seasons in Philadelphia dragged down a lot of players. And I think what you're seeing now is quite a few guys, you know, Travis Konechny at the top of the list. Um, I, I think you're seeing a guy like Joel Farabee is better than maybe we anticipated Travis Sanheim. You know, there are guys on this team who I believe were probably looking worse than they actually were for two seasons, even bordering on three seasons. If you're adding in last year to it, when Tortorella was still trying to get a handle on exactly how he wanted this team to play. I think there were guys that were better than they looked. And now we're finding out, and I'm not necessarily saying that these guys are exactly who they are this year. Some of these guys might be performing a little bit above their true talent levels, but I also don't think they were as bad as they looked in those seasons when the coaching was terrible. And I'm not saying that John Tortorella hasn't had an impact, but when your, your baseline is negative 20, you don't have to be amazing to get these guys to perform better. You just have to be competent. And I think John Tortorella has been better than competent, without a doubt. But I think it's fair to say that some of these guys' performances were being dragged down by the poor coaching, poor systems, and just generally speaking, poor environment that the Flyers were during those two seasons. Yeah, so I I would just because I I was look, kind of looking over you know in preparation for this podcast, just kind of trying to for, familiarize myself with some of the Flyers skaters this season, and um, I I think one of the most surprising ones is Rasmus Ristolainen on the Flyers, because um, as we have talked about Ristolainen many times, it's 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 funny because there's two players on the Flyers that go back a long ways in history of hockey statistics, right? There's Sean Couturier which we'll probably talk about Couturier's return this season, and Ristolainen. Um, and it's just really, I'm just very curious how that kind of changed from being one of the perennial worst defensemen in the league by a lot of the more kind of quote-unquote advanced metrics to being now somewhat kind of looking serviceable on the Flyers. Like, what is your, I guess, your kind of take on that change? Is it just being asked to be play a different role, being put in a different position, different deployment? Like what kind of are you seeing from kind of this change of, of Ristolainen in the last, this season and last season, I guess? Yeah, I just think that, and this is an example of where I think coaching played a massive role because I don't think this is a case of Rasmus Ristolainen woke up one day and decided, I'm going to drive play now. <laughs> I also don't think it was a situation where, oh, it was just as simple as turning him into a second pair defenseman or even a third pair defenseman, which is where he's been most of this season. What I think really happened at its core is that for the first time in Rasmus Ristolainen's NHL career, a coaching staff watched him play <laughs> and came to the evaluation of, this guy stinks. He needs to change what he does because what he's doing is not working. I think the rest of his career, because he was big and he could skate and he could hit and he racked up points that a bunch of not great coaches just decided that, well, he's actually good and the numbers are lying. John Tortorella and Bradshaw, Bradshaw, the assistant coach, who coaches the defense of Philadelphia, they watched Ristolainen for about a month. And they came to the very quick conclusion that this guy needs to be fixed because <laughs> what he's doing is not conducive to winning hockey. Yeah. And they basically went about throughout pretty much the entirety of the first half, even into the second half of last season, working with Ristolainen to remake his game. And I'm not saying it didn't come without negatives. Like Ristolainen does not score anymore. He has, he's not... He's never been an elite offensive defenseman. Like those numbers in those glory days in Buffalo were always pumped up by being on power play with Jack Eichel. Like that's yeah. just a fact. But I mean, you're talking about a guy who has four points in 29 games this year. Like they have forced him to make sacrifices where he now does not really produce anything offensively to the point where he's a borderline liability in terms of being able to help the team create chances and score. But what they have done is by getting him to sacrifice that side of his game. And also, and this has been a big part of it, by getting him to not just chase around hits and get himself pulled completely out of position into the defensive zone and instead take advantage of the fact that he is a good skater for his size and he does have really long reach and he is very physically strong, they basically got him to play to his strengths and stop 
running around out of structure, ruining everything for everybody else. <laughs> and what that's turned him into is a legitimately good defensive defenseman because he does have these really strong tools, especially in the defensive zone. Now, to do that, he's hitting less and he's not scoring at all. <laughs> he's probably still at best, you know, a, a four or five type of guy, maybe even ideally a third pair defenseman. But the difference is, is that before, he was a first-pair defenseman who was, in terms of value added, one of the worst defensemen in hockey. Now, he's a third-pair defenseman who's actually good. And yeah. is that guy worth $5.1 million a year? No, probably not. He's overpaid for the role he's in now and the fact that he produces almost no offense. But he's now actually a positive value player in terms of helping you win games. So now you can at least have the, the argument. Like before, you would always hear people in the game say, well, you don't understand the importance of having a big, physical, intimidating defenseman back there. It makes everybody feel better that they have that guy. And my response was like, look, I'd be more open to that argument if he wasn't grading out as like the worst defenseman in hockey. <laughs> yeah. Now that he's grading out as a, fairly useful but overpaid guy i'm at least willing to have the argument that like okay maybe this intangible thing you know if he's if he's a, a true talent by the numbers like a three million dollar a year player maybe the intangibles bump him up to four million dollars i'm open to that i don't think that's ridiculous but when a guy is producing sub replacement level value i don't really give a crap about the intangibles he's actively making the team worse when he's on the ice yeah. now you can actually have that discussion i still think he's overpaid and I think that's just the reality of the situation. But he's legitimately a decent NHL defenseman. And, you know, credit to Rissa Line. He's, he's worked his tail off to get to this point. Yeah. Well, and I think it's funny because that's kind of another thing where, like, where, like, I, I, I would say specifically kind of some of the more advanced metrics that we, you know, like to provide or kind of focus on where you're trying to value defensive performance, right? Where that doesn't make you any money in the, you know, from a contract perspective, right? But it actually helps your team, you know? And so it's an interesting point to like say how that is a real sacrifice for a skater to make when they're being asked to play a different role where Ristolainen is, you know, previously was getting a decent number of points because of the role he was in, but now he's being kind of been identified as actual at this point in his career, what his talents are or what his strengths are and playing to those strengths and actually helping the team kind of win um, is just an interesting, I, I hadn't quite thought about that from a player perspective. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, Charlie, wasn't he kind of also with the Flyers still used as a power play guy, like for when he was on the team or am I, was he kind of just, cause it was that in the past that I'm just misremembering. It was mostly Buffalo. He did get some power play time. Um, they tried him out. They've tried him out at times even this year just because the Flyers' power play has been so bad. Yeah, they yeah. just <laughs> were throwing things at the wall and hoping it stuck. They had they tried him out a bit at the point. They gave him a couple looks over the last couple of years at net front, which is something Buffalo also tried him uh, there on occasion. But I do think that the intention... like the, So the Flyers trade for Rasmus Line in the summer of 2021. 2021-2022 is his first season with the Flyers. He does not perform well. He just looks like Rasmus Line yeah. again, <laughs> just in a new uniform. I do think, however, when the Flyers traded for him, they traded for him with the intention of trying to focus on his defense because i remember interviewing people in the organization and they're like well if we just move him down the depth chart and we get him to turn to, to focus on defense rather than offense we could think we could turn him into a pretty good player they didn't give him power play time that first year they used him in a second pair of role largely with travis sandheim it just didn't work and i think the reason why it didn't work truthfully is because the coaches just weren't good enough like, yeah, he finally last year got the Tortorella Shaw combination that actually had the coaching ability to unlock this. The coaches he had that first year in Philadelphia, I just don't think either either they weren't invested enough in coaching at that point. And I'm more speaking to Vino. I I, I have a hunch that after the pandemic, he just kind of was done with this. Yeah, he just his heart wasn't fully in NHL coaching the way it was before the pandemic. And then he gets let go and suddenly you have a completely restructured coaching staff. I just don't think they had the ability to get this out of Ristolainen in the same way that, that Tortorella and Shaw, both in terms of focus and in just in terms of coaching acumen, were able to do. And from, I guess, so I think the thing that's really interesting is the idea of the change, the, the, the change in coaching and the way that the, the organ, but also the organization, right? Because there's been a lot of, I think it's been a, 
uh, a long and very slow process of change, but also very quick at, at times as well. And I, I'm just kind of curious, is, is do you think that the main coaching thing is, is more like you've kind of brought up this several times about kind of the way that the team is evaluating players and what they think they're getting from their players and who's good and who's bad? Like, is that maybe the, the biggest strength of the new kind of organization or Tortorella is like a better evaluation and a better kind of or maybe even reevaluation of what they had and like a kind of role scenario? Is that because one thing I've noticed with the Flyers is that their power play, like you've mentioned, is terrible. But they actually have quite a good like penalty kill, it seems like their penalty kill yeah. numbers have been quite good this year. Is that more from like kind of I mean, you know, shorthand of time, especially in like half a season is always kind of tricky to really say whether or not that's real or like what's going on there. But I'm kind of curious. That's an interesting thing to have a switch. And we've seen this with like, you know, certain teams with that have a kind of a different organizational change, like something like Buffalo. You know, they kind of try to go more defense this year and it's really backfire. I mean, it just has not worked with their players. Like, is that the shorthanded aspect? Is that more from a coaching and the power play is something that also that's kind of maybe resulting from the a different change in this in the way that they've been approaching their special teams or is it kind of just fluky in that in that regard it's an interesting question i do think if speaking of the penalty kill i think the penalty kill is in large part driven by the fact that they have a really really good x's and o's guy in brad shaw brad shaw runs the penalty kill the power play they have rocky thompson who is not nearly as experienced and established in terms of creating a really good power play by the same token it's also a talent thing they have a lot of guys on this Flyers team that either have been really good penalty killers in the past or have the kind of skill set that lends themselves to be really good penalty killers. Whereas if you look on the flip side on the power play, I'm of the opinion basically that if you're going to have a really good power play, you need guys that scare defenses. The Flyers don't really have forwards or defensemen for that matter who really scare defenses the main reason why they've been able to be so effective at five on five this year so much more effective than i think anybody thought is because they've been an exceptionally good rush team they attack so well off the rush they attack in transition they play with pace they score on odd man rushes they score they just score at speed the power play really doesn't lend itself to that you have to be good at being set up and then having great playmakers and great shooters. I just think that at five on five, they've been able to kind of mask their weaknesses in terms of star power and creativity by building a system that like a rush chance is going to be dangerous, even if a not that great player is on the rush, because they're just harder to stop and harder to defend. It's easier to defend the cycle. The way you are, you have a dangerous cycle is you have players that scare the crap out of defenses. The flyers don't really have that. And I think that really shows up on the power play. So I think there are a couple things to play here. I also think that, you know, going back to your point about how are they doing this, I do think they've also improved their player development. And when I say player development, I don't just mean prospects. I mean things like wrist alignment, yeah, 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 making yeah. a guy better who's already been an NHLer. I think they've gotten a lot better in that regard. But I do think that there are points where the lack of talent shows itself and you can't, like, you can't turn Scott Lawton into a superstar. He's yeah. a perfectly solid yeah. player, but there's a ceiling as to what you can get out of him, even if you're getting the absolute best out of him. Same with Ristolainen. You know, even same with, with an Owen Tippett. I think they're getting a lot out of Owen Tippett. I don't think they can turn Owen Tippett into a 100-point player. I just don't think he has that in him. I don't think he's that good. And in order to fix the power play, they would have to do that. And I don't think they are <laughs> capable of doing that with the guys they have, at least. I guess on the player development piece, where do things stand, I guess, with Morgan Frost, right? Because he's been a healthy scratch a few times this year. And if you look at evolving-hockey.com, uh, today's sponsor, uh, like his numbers are like fairly decent. Um, yeah. Like where's all that kind of been standing? And I know there's like some sort of uh, uh, Tortorella-isms too with like you always know where you're standing with Tortorella. So I trust that you know the translations for us. I'm interested <laughs> in that. So the Frost situation is fascinating because I actually think there's a chance that the two of them, Frost and Tortorella, may have actually turned the corner. And I think it may have happened for such a Tortorella reason. John Tortorella is, his coaching style is very much, I am going to push you and I'm going to push you and I'm going to be critical when, when you're messing up. We do these video sessions where Tortorella just like puts someone's mistake up on the board and just eviscerates them in front of the entire group. And that's just the way Tortorella does business. And Tortorella has said, look, 
if you have a problem with me, if you have a problem with your treatment, come to me and tell me and let's hash it out. Morgan Frost, I, I actually really like covering Morgan Frost. He's a really, really nice kid. He is not someone who naturally is comfortable going into the coach's office and yelling at him and telling him, <laughs> this is bullshit, play me. Yeah. Tortorella wants guys to do that. Like that's, Tortorella eats that shit up. He really does. He loves confrontation and he wants to pull confrontation out of players because he thinks it makes them better. Now you can agree or disagree. I'm just saying this is what Tortorella believes. In early January, Morgan Frost was scratched for a game. It was coming right off of a road trip. Tortorella apparently had a conversation with him on the plane ride home. And then he had a phone conversation with him the day he was planning to scratch him. The next day, Morgan Frost apparently finally broke and went up to Tortorella before practice and said, we need to have a conversation in your office. And no one is willing to reveal the details of said conversation. But it seems like Morgan Frost finally gave Tortorella a piece of his mind. <laughs> and Tortorella, being the odd personality that he is, apparently absolutely loved it and was thrilled. Like, he probably just got yelled at by Morgan Frost. And he's like, this is what I've been waiting two years for you to do, kid. And the funny part is, is that he gets back in the next game. He scores a goal. He's an impact player. And ever since then, he, number one, he hasn't been scratched. But number two, he just looks more effective. And I agree that the numbers this year, particularly his underlying metrics, you know, by RAPM and all of the, uh, the on-ice metrics, they've been good pretty much from the start. What Tortorella has said to him on multiple occasions is, look, I appreciate what you're doing, improving the details of your game. I notice it. But if you're going to make it in this league, you need to score. You are a scorer. That is going to be your role. And what you've seen over these last three, three-ish weeks, three and a half weeks, I don't know. Time isn't real. In any case, <laughs> you're seeing him play with more confidence. You're seeing him play with more assertiveness. Like he's trying to make plays happen in the offensive zone. And I think most interestingly enough, you're seeing him play so much faster. Like that's always been something about Morgan Frost dating back to his time in the in uh, not in the minors, in uh, in juniors where he uh, he exploded, he had a huge draft plus one year, but you watched him play, he always played slow. He was a very deliberate guy. He liked to be able to kind of watch things develop and then find, you know, find an open man and whatnot. And in juniors in the OHL, that works. The NHL, you got guys on, on your back, back check and trying to take the puck from you. You're not going to be able to pull that off. And the funny thing is, is that Morgan Frost is actually a really good skater. He is legitimately a fast skater, but he never played like it. If you watched him, like I remember Corey Promins did a scouting report of him when he was still a prospect and graded him out as like a below average skater. Now, Corey was wrong because he's not a below average skater, <laughs> but I can understand why you would watch him play juniors and think he's a below average skater because it's like if, if you can skate that well, why don't you? Like, why don't you play as fast yeah. as you can, as your physical tools would allow you to? He just did it. What you've seen over these last two or three weeks is that he's starting to play with that kind of pace on a more consistent basis. I don't know if it's going to work out in Philly. I don't know if John Tortorella is ever going to be fully sold on Morgan Frost, but I can tell you this after that meeting, I think there's a much better chance this could work because Frost has improved his details. Last year, he was not a play driver this year. He is. And now he's doing some of the things offensively that Tortorella wants them to do. It's going to be really interesting to see how Morgan Frost, the rest of the second half plays out because he could be in the process of turning Tortorella's mind around on him. Possibly. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was kind of curious on that idea of what they were, what players, what they were in juniors or when they were in, you know, the lower leagues versus what they're kind of doing now. Uh, Forrester is another one that seems to be doing the exact opposite of what everyone had said. And he, we've <laughs> talked about him several times. He's a rookie. Uh, by our metrics, I mean, we, uh, we had, a, you know, Sean's going to hate that I even bring this up, but we had an awards ballot out uh, a couple week or two ago that, you know, we don't have a vote. I, I believe, Charlie, you still do. Um, but it, it's so we like Luke and I like to put out our ballots, yeah we like right? we like our ballot because we have right? no you know and right. and we've had it a few times now in our Selkie list that Forrester has shown up as one of our our picks and it's ridiculous I can't remember the last time that a rookie has been this good like a forward has been this good defensively and but I and trust me Luke and I are you know fully not prospect people I don't know anything about players who are in lower leagues I know NHL players so once. Forster hit the NHL, and in the first couple 20 games, I'm like, oh, who's this kid? He's a rookie. Like, look at this. This is my kind of guy. But then I've seen a lot of people who said, well, this wasn't what he was supposed to be. I'm kind of curious if, if this – do you think that what 
Forster's done. So, for, I mean, people have listened, you know, have heard us talk about him, but he, he's just, by a lot of our metrics, he's been one of the best defensive forwards in the league. Um, and I'm just kind of curious, is that something that you think is his actual player, like his player profile? Or do you think the, because I believe he was kind of touted as a, you know, kind of a shooting forward, like he was supposed yeah. to score, right? So I'm like, yeah. what, where, what's, what's gone wrong, but also <laughs> amazingly right with Forster this season in terms of at least half a season of a rookie year? Well, I guess before I get into that, I kind of want to go into sort of who he was viewed to be as okay. a prospect. So he obviously gets taken in the first round in uh, in 2020, I believe. I believe it was the pandemic year when he was taken in the first round. And the book on Tyson Forrester at the time was high hockey IQ, really smart player, plus plus shot. He can he can light the lamp. He can't skate. They need to fix the skating. He is a outright poor skater. That was why he slipped as far as he did down to uh, the, the 20s where the Flyers were able to nab him. So most of the focus on Forrester from a prospect development standpoint, I think was more or less on his skating, not just from a Flyers perspective, but also from everyone watching prospects was, can Forrester skate well enough to put himself into opportunities at the NHL level to use his shot? Well, right now, what you're seeing is a guy who I think is struggling a bit. He has definitely gotten quicker. He's never going to be fast, but he's definitely not as bad of a skater as he was when he got drafted. He's made made improvements in that area. But I think you are seeing a player who, because of his skating deficiencies that still linger, is struggling a bit to get into the areas that allows him to take full advantage of his shot. However, I think we all underrated the quality of his hockey IQ because, look, everything's easier to do when you're fast, but you can still be a really, really good defensive player, even if you're not that great of a skater. I mean, I've spent the past decade plus watching Sean Couture, who is not quick, be one of the better defensive forwards in hockey. And he just finds a way to do it because he's smart. He's great with positioning. He's great with a stick. He's strong along the boards. Forrester has a lot of those same traits. And I think what you're seeing here is they're hoping at some point, either the skating improves or he just finds ways to get into open spots to be able to use a shot more. But I do think the defense is mostly real. I think he is legitimately a really good defensive four because he's always been viewed as a guy who has high hockey IQ. He's always been viewed like that. And I think he's played like he played for the Phantoms last year. I think they focus a lot on the details. And I think he just was a quick study in terms of understanding, okay, this is how I have to defend this level. This is what I have to watch for. These are the, the strengths I need to play to. I just think for whatever reason, the defense has come around quicker for him than, than the shooting. Now, do I think he's this good defensively in terms of him being the best defensive forward in hockey <laughs> per the RPM? I'm skeptical. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. My, my explanation, and we talked about this, this on Twitter a few weeks ago, is that I think he is absolutely a really good defensive forward in a middle six role. I think he has benefited from the times he's been used in a first line tough minutes role. He's been used on a line with Sean Couturier, who I suspect is helping him out a lot in terms of handling that role. Like, I think if you put Tyson Forrester on the first line, match him up against Connor McDavid and had him be like the guy driving that matchup, I think he would still not do quite well, but put him on a line with Sean Couturier and get that matchup. And I think he can handle it now in two, three, four more years when he has time to, to learn more of the tricks of the trade about defense. Maybe he could be that guy. I think he's a legitimately good possibly even great defensive winger. I don't think I would call him like one of the best defensive wingers or best defensive forwards in hockey, but I do think it's real. Like I think this talent is real. Yeah. yeah. So ba basically he's the next Mark Stone. <laughs> That's basically, I mean, I've, I've made that comparison. And like, I'm not saying he's going to do it, but if you're looking at a best case scenario, developmental outcome for Tyson Forrester, it is Mark Stone. Yeah. It's, probably in the single digits in terms of likelihood, but like, Hey, you never know. You never know. Yeah. Cause right. That's what, that's what everybody, I'm trying to remember back to, to, I mean, obviously Mark Stone was taken very, very late in the draft, but it seems like that's a kind of comparison. Cause what he just hit was a terrible skater. Right. If I'm remembering yeah. correctly. And it, yeah. it is really an interesting thing to think about with regards to skating at a younger age, how I feel like a deficiency in that area might kind of influence or, or require you to to kind of pick up on things 
elsewhere yeah. in the game that kind of allow you to have a better positioning game, I guess is the general know, way not to, to say to, it. Not to go back to our favorite player of all time, but I watched Mika Koivu do this as one of the, <laughs> you know, a horrible skater. I mean, not the, you know, but he was never that kind of skater. And I think that from defense, that's if, if the IQ, like to your point, or just your positioning, the way that you, you know, are on the ice, the way that you're allowing nothing to happen, right? I mean, that's kind of what you're looking for. Um, I, I think it's really interesting because for a while this season, right, like Forster was playing with Konechny and Couturier, but it looks like he's been kind of moving around the lineup like recently. Um, and I'm kind of curious, is that like, are they, tra- is, is his, has that translated to other lines? Does he still kind of seem like the, you know, we'll get to Couturier in a little bit because he's been one of our favorite players just because from a stats uh, standpoint, but just kind of curious, he, he, it's not like he's been like playing 80% of his time with Couturier. I think he's, well, the last yeah. I looked, he's less than half his time is spent with Couturier this season. A lot of that has been over the last like few weeks. He's kind of been moving around roles, and it looks like the team is trying him out in different, you know, usage, uh, I guess, uh, examples or, or use cases. I'm kind of curious, like, how that how that's translated. I, you kind of covered it a little bit, but um, to mostly this is just to our haters who talk about the <laughs> fact that, oh, that can't be real, right? No, I'm, I'm kind of right. just kidding here, but uh, I'm kind of curious how that's translated to not playing with Couturier. I think even without Kateri, he still very much looks like a high-end defensive four. He's still making great plays with his stick. He's still winning battles along the boards. Not a lot happens in his own zone when he's on the ice. Like he, th- It's not just a product of Kateri. I very much believe that. Yeah. That said, the reason why he's bouncing around the lineup has nothing to do with his defensive play. Like John Tortorella raves about his defensive play. <laughs> he raves about the fact that like this guy has the, I think he said before, like he has the best stick on the team already. And he's you know, <laughs> yeah. 21 going on 22. He just turned 22. Tortorella loves the details. He, I, I have a feeling he never has to point out Tyson Forrester making a mistake defensively when they do their video sessions. The reason why he's been bouncing around the lineup is because they want him to score. And yeah. they're trying to find someone or multiple people on this team that he has some chemistry with that allows him to score goals at the level that he wants to score. Like, look, Tyson Forrest is having a good rookie year. Don't get me wrong. That said, we're talking about a guy who in 49 games has nine goals and has spent most of the, most of the season in the top six. Like yeah. the flyers are, are a team that struggles to score goals. And one of the reasons why they struggle to score goals is one of their top six forwards can't score goals. For yeah. <laughs> so they're trying their best to get him going offensively and get him to be the guy who they thought they drafted. That said, look, if if Tyson Forrester only ends up being an elite defensive winger who gives you 35 points a year, there are certainly worse things to have on your roster. Yeah. They're not going to complain, but they would like to try to get the offense going because I think they realize that if they do get the offense going and it doesn't sacrifice the defensive play, suddenly they have like a stealth star on their team and that yeah. really excites them. So they're trying to find ways to get that guy out of it. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the reasons why Luke and I would be terrible at running the hockey team. Is those I would make a team full of those guys, <laughs> 30, 30 point guys who just don't do it, don't yeah, let anything just happen, all right? value. <laughs> it's just the value players, you know. Just but it, it is funny. But so so let's get to Couturier because I think Couturier is a very very interesting. Obviously, player because Sean giving me a look over here. Nobody, we don't <laughs> do just, videos. It's just funny as like if like this is the, when what you've been waiting for. Is oh yeah, Sean we gotta talk about the return. Waiting for him to come back from injury. <laughs> look, because okay, your piece. So people maybe don't if they haven't been in the hockey stats world or haven't been paying attention for a long time. Sean Couturier has been like a going back like kind of a, a analytics darling, like one you know quote unquote one of the original you know, analytics darlings. I think Mark Stone was kind of in that group too. Um, I mean, it's been six, seven years now and it's unfortunately he, I, what was it? Josh is told, I forgot. It I was, think he missed about two years with back surgery, right? Or like multiple yeah. different injuries. So, right? which is like a bit, really a shame because he was such a kind of, I think, well, he was the perennial, what, underrated skate player in the league. <laughs> like constantly, it was like, everybody would say Barkov and then it's like, no, it's not Barkov. It's Couturier actually. And so I'm just kind of curious, like your take on him missing so much time and then coming back and like, has he kind of picked up right where he left off? I mean, obviously he's older now, but it's just kind of, it seems like he's, you know, being, he's been pretty, pretty good. Um, And I'm kind of curious what your takes are on him missing two years and then returning to, to Philly. Yeah, I am. I am shocked maybe let's use that word i'm shocked that how good he is yeah. still yeah. after missing a year and a half like this is not we're not talking about a minor thing here. we're talking about 
he had a back, he had an injury that he basically played through the, the first 29 games of the 2021, 2022 season. He gets back surgery for it. So he misses the rest of that year over half a season. Then the first back surgery doesn't take, and he has to get a second back surgery, which, you know, they, they tried to smooth it over a little bit in the media, but like, this wasn't a new injury. This was the first back surgery didn't work. So we're going to go in there and do it again and cross our fingers and hope to God it works this time. Then he missed the entirety of last year too. So he was coming back from a year and a half away from the game, two back surgeries, and he's in his thirties. I was hoping that we were going to get something close to peak Couturier. Yeah. But realistically, I was like, if we have, if the Flyers get 70% of the old Couturier, they should count themselves lucky because these are not the types of circumstances that usually allow a player to come back and more or less look like he did before. Couturier more or less looks like he did before. Now, maybe he does not, he's not quite as dominant as he was in his best years, but he's not that far off, to be honest with <laughs> yeah. you. And he doesn't look that much different. Like when you watch him play, he pretty much looks like the same guy. I did a piece in the beginning of December, basically breaking down, okay, what are, like, what has come back for Couturier? What hasn't come back? What might never come back? And when I first started doing research for the piece, there was a lot more, there were a lot more things that I said, well, he's not quite where he used to be. But by the time I actually got to publishing the piece, Mostly everything was where it was before the injury. <laughs> the main two things that weren't were his finishing, which is legitimately a concern still. Like he is still only scoring on 7.4% of his shots. Before the back surgery, he was well over 10%. I do wonder if maybe that might be gone. We'll see. Yeah. The other thing was face-offs, which you, know, you can debate back and forth how important they are. But when a guy who previously was in the upper 50s comes back and suddenly is only winning 47% of his face-off. That's a dramatic decline. Well, now he's up to 52.5 and he's winning face-offs again like crazy. So now really it's just the finishing. We'll see if that comes back, but from a play driving standpoint, he still pretty much looks like Sean Couturier, maybe not peak Sean Couturier, but darn good Sean Couturier, at least at the point where he's a quality top six forward and a quality top six center at the NHL level and if the finishing comes back, then suddenly you're looking at a guy who's probably still a 70-point-a-year dude. Yeah. And I think what's really fascinating about him is it almost just feels like he just got older. It doesn't seem like there, like you could just like say, okay, no, no history about the injury or whatever, which is like yeah. from I, – I can't remember the last time a player has missed – this long of a seat, like uh, this kind of player has missed this amount of time and even like come back and played like top six type role or had, you know, like, I mean, it's happened here and there, but I just think it's really fascinating how um, he's just back. And I think it's just a treat to have Katuri back in the league, you know, because I think he was always one of my, you know, we're a little biased, but he was always one of my favorite players to watch. Um, I think just how he plays the game and kind of also then seeing like him, he's still one of the constants used to be that was like, at least we know that Katuri is going to put up good numbers in the league, right? You can at least have that, right? And so now we get that back. It's kind of yeah, fun to have almost- it's like his arc, his age curve just like had a gap in the middle of it <laughs> yeah. where, where there's a gap and it's like, OK, we're back, you know, kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it, yeah the, the, the trend line is still going the way it, you expect. It exactly. Yeah. There's a year and a half missing. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's also comforting when, you know, those are the players, you know, from from our models and whatnot when we're running them and I get to see every year. OK, it's like that's why we love Jared Spurgeon. because Jared Spurgeon is right there. You know, he's going to be at the top. And he is. And Katuri was one of those players where he's like, yeah, he's at least going to be in the top top 20 top 15 somewhere and then it's like okay i'm doing something right here something right he's up there okay i I realize that we it's been luke and i mostly asking questions i don't want to you know exclude sean if you if if we're just kind of ignore you know butting in in front of him if you had something to ask because i didn't know i excluding me Okay, I'm sorry. I apologize, Sean. If yeah, I had, I had another topic, but I realized I, I've been. It's only been Luke and I. So. Is it music? <laughs> no, not music. I was Are just kind of on music. Yet? <laughs> you you want to ask a question? Sean? I'm gonna let but you yeah. ask a question. I'll yeah, let you finish. Heck? I was What's just curious. This? You're not letting of... me finish. <laughs> <laughs> Josh, shut up. I'm sorry. You... You can't let me finish, and you can't finish the X guy right now. That's that's what's been going on. Yes. Yeah. What the heck is up with with Scott Lawton's uh, penalties? Like, why is he taking so many penalties? He took about 30 penalties on um, Saturday against the Bruins, maybe 45. He's the 16th worst um, in the league in terms of penalty gar at negative 1.3 and worst on the team below uh, or above, whichever way you want to think about it, uh, Delorier. I mean, what's been going on there? 
I did not realize he graded out that low relative to the rest of the league. <laughs> it doesn't shock me because, yeah, especially over these last couple of weeks, he's been taking a lot of really dumb penalties. And I have to believe that a lot of it is just frustration because, look, I, I am a pretty big Scott Lawton fan in terms of his quality as a bottom of the lineup role player. I think he's kind of like your ideal Swiss Army knife utility guy. Like he's a glue guy who's actually good. Coaches always talk about glue guys, and usually that's a it's a euphemism for like, well, this guy sucks, but I like him, so he's gonna play. Yeah. Scott Lawton has been that guy except good. And I've always really been a fan of the way he plays. He plays a hard-nosed game, he plays with a lot of energy, he's a really good guy off the ice. So I've always been a Scott Lawton fan. He has been really bad this year, and not just by penalties. He hasn't been scoring much. He has five goals in 50 games. His underlying numbers, which usually are pretty good, not amazing, third, but pretty good. worse than next car, yeah. Around the break even, <laughs> they are real, real bad this year. Like, around league worst in terms of isolated impact and whatnot. I don't know what's wrong with Scott Long, to be totally honest with you. I really don't. The only thing I can think of, because he's not, he's not young, but he's not old. Like, he's 29 going on 30. Yeah. You would think that while this might be an age where the decline maybe starts, I wouldn't expect him to completely fall off a cliff for no reason. So I just wonder if this might be one of those down years where some guys, for an inexplicable reason, just stink one year. And then next year he'll bounce back and maybe won't be as good as he was two years ago, but won't be as bad as he is this year. Like this might just be a year where he's just kind of caught in a spiral where you know, he struggles to score, so he tries to score more, and then suddenly his two-way play suffers, and then his two-way play suffers, so then he's frustrated even more, so then he takes bad penalties, and then the whole thing falls apart for yeah. him. Like, I have to believe that that's probably what's going on here, because I don't think he's a he's true talent this bad. He has too long of a track record, and he's not so old that I think that, like, this is just the new normal. But it's undeniable that he's been really bad this year. He's been to the point where, like, I am honestly kind of surprised that John Tortorella hasn't scratched him. The reason why he hasn't might be because he's the only guy wearing a letter on this team and he is so beloved in the room. But at some point, if you're going to say that you're instituting a culture of accountability, like, I'm sure everybody on that team knows Scott Lawton ain't playing well. Scott Lawton knows he ain't playing that well. So <laughs> yeah. I, I really hope he can turn around the second half. But, but Sean, to answer your question, I don't know for sure <laughs> what is wrong with Scott Lawton. I've watched it for a long time, and I've never seen him play this sport. I I, yeah, I kind of thought favorite of mine. Yeah, I, I was going to say kind of let maybe, Josh let sorry. Sean follow sorry, up. Yes. No, I, I was done. <laughs> Sean's done. I was going to say to maybe finish up on the Flyers here. I was kind of curious. So they're on a bit of a, a losing streak. I think they've lost the last five. Five. They're still. Yeah, and they're they're still third in the Met, right? A Metropolitan, I think, right? Um, but I'm kind of curious yeah. as they're getting closer to, you know, and obviously we talked about this at the beginning, and I think a lot of people know this, is that they're kind of like out of nowhere, like good. There's a couple teams like that this year, but I'm kind of curious as they get closer to the trade deadline, do you think that the team is going to try to potentially add to maybe, are they expecting to make the playoffs and try to go on a run, or is this still kind of a developing year where they're maybe just going to kind of hold steady, um, you know, maybe wait for the offseason or maybe wait to see kind of where they're at come the trade deadline? Do you think that, do you, do you intend, or do you think they intend to make some moves, or are they still kind of waiting to see what team they are? I do not think they are going to add pretty much anything okay okay the only way i could see them adding is if they can get somebody mildly useful for like a late round pick like especially given the um you know the situation they have in goal right now with sam harrison kind of being thrust into a number one role like it wouldn't blow me away if they gave up like a fifth round pick for a decent enough backup just so he doesn't have to play every night like, yeah. i could see that but i don't think they are going to go out there and this is based on on the record interviews i've had with pretty much everybody in the flyers brain trust over the last month or so I do not think there is any chance they are going to go out and start tossing high draft picks and prospects to try to take a run at the playoffs. They very much believe that this is still a rebuilding year. They are exceeding expectations in a rebuilding year, but they are still rebuilding. Like I fully expect that Sean Walker, who has been another one of those revelations that yeah. I think you can credit the Flyers coaching staff a lot for their ability to have him reach an entirely new level of, of, per, of performance and production. I expect Sean Walker will be moved at the deadline. And the reason why I think that's going to happen is, number one, he's an expiring contract. Number two, he's definitely a little bit on the older end. But number three, they just traded for Jamie Drysdale, who's another right-handed shooting defenseman. And I think they just realized that it doesn't make any sense for them to explore re-signing Sean Walker. And if you're not going to re-sign him, 
well, maybe try to get a first round pick for him at the deadline from a team that wants a right-handed shooting defenseman. And then suddenly maybe you can go into this draft with three first round picks instead of just two and then really supercharge this rebuild. So I am very much still expecting the Flyers to approach this trade deadline as a mostly rebuilding team. Now you might see them do something like re-sign Nick Sealer because they think he's good for the culture. I don't totally agree with that, but I could see them doing something like <laughs> that. Minnesota Wild Legend right there. <laughs> Minnesota Wild Legend Nick Sealer. <laughs> Hey, that that that's a that's a Chuck Fletcher grad. He, I know. He pulled him out of semi-retirement. I know. I'm playing Philadelphia. <laughs> hey, Nick Sealer's been pretty decent this well, year. It was Overall, funny. Much my, better than I expected. On my notepad, like you know, as uh, you know, some prep for this, I I was looking at it and I I didn't finish. I just have one bullet that just says Nick Sealer. <laughs> I, it wasn't question a question. Mark. No question. question. No question mark. Just Nick Sealer. And I was like, oh, well, I went and looked at it. And I was that like, was oh. funny. <laughs> just just a, a comment here was one of the, Nick Sealer had um, some some wrap them or RAPM numbers that were so confusing to me last year that I thought there was an error with our one of like something was going on <laughs> because his Fenwick against like his Corsi against was so much different than every other like metric. I, I can't remember the exact I situation. I think it was his XGA actually that he like was really, really good in last year for some reason and everything else so it's was a high all... percentage of shots blocked, I think. Yeah. Well, yeah. And then it's like has, when he was he does block a lot of shots. Yeah, the yeah. No, it's just the way the number of shots like sheer number of shots he blocks is just makes things look really weird. Like it's really <laughs> a, a strange like thing that happened last year. And it was it was it reminded me because of Sean Walker was Sean Walker at when we were first I think when he was with the Kings he we were like the first year of one of our our gar models I think like he was just or our rapper models he was just a coursey god <laughs> like he was for the first half of the year was just like blowing every other defense out of the water in his coursey differential with the Kings which is hilarious and then I remember being like oh that's a guy I need to watch and then I like didn't ever really hear much more about Sean Walker after that <laughs> and it was just it was interesting looking at kind of the Flyers team from some of our models it's like Sean Walker's been pretty good this year like <laughs> yeah. wow like he's been okay I remember him I'm but anyway, anyway. And, and, yeah. and Nick Nick Sealer was his regular partner, is his yeah. regular partner. And it's funny, I'm looking at the numbers now too for Nick Sealer, and you're right. It's not that's something I really hadn't noticed. But you have Nick Sealer looking at his his RAPM. He is a plus three point two nine Corsi against impact. So he's he's having a, a poor impact on stopping overall shot attempts. Yep. But then you look at his impact on expectable spectacles against and actual goals against. And it's strongly negative. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, it, I guess this is what happens when you are truly an amazing shot blocker. Yes. Yeah, I. Well, what's funny is that he was one of those guys. We have a couple that I was like, was at least at the time I was like, I think it was like 2017 or something, and I was like, oh, Sealer, that's my guy. Like, because he had like half a season of good relative teammate numbers, and I was like, that's my guy on the Wild, right? And then nothing ever happened, and then he kind of, yeah, like Fletcher went and got him, and I was like, oh, Nick Sealer's back in the league, and then I was like, wait, Nick Sealer is like back in the league, right? Like, he's like doing some <laughs> weird stuff to the point that he was like like the player last year that I kept looking at. I was like, what the hell is going on in Philadelphia with Nick Sealer? I kept thinking this last year, and then this year he's still like serviceable, and I mean, there he's on like a, like, minimum contract isn't he this year yeah and it's, yeah. it's he's, he's, he's they got him on a league minimum contract yeah. the, the funny part about nick sealer this is actually i'm curious if he actually has been good all along in philadelphia <laughs> because you look at his numbers yeah. his numbers his first year in philadelphia were not good his numbers last year were, were legitimately good in a third pair role yeah this year they're legitimately good in a second pair role but you go back to that first year in philly he spent the vast majority of that year joined at the hip to the corpse of Keith Yandel. And <laughs> oh, like no. legitimately one of the worst defensemen. At, the final year of Keith Yandel might have been like the worst defenseman year I've ever watched up close in <laughs> yeah. my life. Yeah. And I'll never forget when they finally scratched Keith Yandel. And I didn't report this. I forget exactly who it was. It was one of the other uh, writers around the Flyers who reported this. But the explanation as to why they scratched Keith Yandel in part was we need to see if Nick Sealer is actually bad or if he's just bad because he's next to Keith Yandel. <laughs> like, it's not, it's not fair to Nick Sealer to judge him on this season because he looks bad because he's next to that guy. And we need to see him away from that guy. Yeah. And that's part of the reason why we're scratching Keith Yandel. And as it turned out, 
He looked pretty good away from Keith Yandel, at least by the eye test. They re-signed him, and then these last few years, he's been actually pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, uh, I think Nick Sealer is the perfect kind of guy to end on some hockey discussions. We're getting a little bit close to the end of our of our time with you, with Charlie. But I, as we did the last time, it's time for us to uh, once again exclude Sean and I and ask. <laughs> We've about, been excluding him. Oh no no no! I get my one question. Okay, okay one question. question. Go ahead. As uh, as a uh, Pennsylvania native, is Western PA? part of the midwest is like pittsburgh part of the midwest is that a midwestern city so i personally would say yes because the times i've been in pittsburgh it feels like i'm in a midwestern city like there are so many more similarities in terms of the people and just in terms of the overall feel like comparing pittsburgh to columbus versus pittsburgh to philly yeah i i'm gonna need to uh uh I don't agree, but I also, <laughs> but it's all, it's all vibes, right? It seems like it's what, yeah, oh, it's totally so vibes. that's the thing is that for me as an actual like Northern Miss Midwesterner, right? In Minneapolis, I feel like East coast people, you get the East coast, right? Like you, you're out there, right? This is our area, but it's more right. about pure ge- geography, but I never think about it as vibes mostly because I don't really travel that often and I'm not, you know, evaluating the, the vibes of different cities, which is, I think Sean in your kind of take or your point well, that here. was the wall street journal article too i think yeah. we're, we have a lot of momentum on on that no and yeah. i i just want to go but on the rest of the whole new york the whole middle of the country is the midwest PA. then yeah why don't what yeah. is that I, like it would be it, fine if you call like ideal indiana ohio it's, ideal, okay. it's a way of life as opposed to, no no we're, we're yeah, falling no, apart absolutely. i sorry i can't i can't agree with this on, on the on the record i'm stating that i do not agree but also i've never been to pittsburgh so i can't really talk about been to columbus though yeah. yeah, we've been to Columbus. I mean, Columbus kind of felt Midwest. It, it did. It, it felt Midwest. But it's like, okay, well, what are we going to call? Is everything the Midwest? Like, are we going out to Montana, too? We're going from Montana. <laughs> yeah, parts of Montana. What? Yeah, no. absolutely. Uh-uh. Well, Eastern parts of Montana. No. no. East of the mountains where no. it's still plains. Okay, still- there's, a, no, there's so, enough here. I think the last thing I wanted to end on is what I think what we did, and we're going to make this a tradition when we have Charlie on again, is that I want to hear what your, you know, maybe like your top couple records were from last year. Uh, you know, as, as pe- if people don't know, Charlie is a is a... A, a, has a massive brain for music i'll say I, I don't know the best way to put this but he he he's he's got a lot of we've had our our fair share of conversations about indie music over the years and i'm kind of curious last year did were you kind of still listening to stuff do you feel like you had a good good collection of, of albums that you enjoyed last year that kind of in your realm of listening i would say yes um it wasn't it, honestly what happened it was honestly a really good music year for me up until September when I took the new job and okay, then I just yeah. stopped listening to new yeah. things. Like, for example, like I really, really still want to listen to the uh, to the new Sufjan album. I just okay, haven't yeah. had a chance. Yeah. Like, I, I feel like I need like a weekend to just digest it and I haven't had that opportunity. So yeah. I want to wait until I have the time to really dive into it because it just feels like one of those like weighty albums yeah. that you need to really focus on. But yeah, I, I still I would say through the first like nine months of the year, I, I found albums I liked. Um, for a while, I thought my favorite one was going to be the the Lana Del Rey record, which okay. I really liked. Um, I was a big I've never been a Lana Del Rey fan until uh, Norman fucking Rockwell, which I thought was just a great, great pop album. Didn't like the next couple. I thought this was finally the follow up to Norman fucking Rockwell that I wanted. So I thought for a long time it was going to be my favorite album, even though it was a record that, like, I enjoy it. Don't get me wrong. I think it's a very well-written record, but it's a record I more appreciate it than really connect it with because it's very much, like, it's it's almost like an autobiography. It's not an album that really lets you in. It's more like you are reading her take on her own legend. And I find it a really interesting listen, but it's not something where, like, man, I really relate to this. Yeah. The album that really hit me hard in terms of relatability um it's a scottish band called there will be fireworks and okay it's very very much my type of music because they're they're kind of on that same i don't know if you guys are super familiar with them but um there's a scottish band uh, they're defunct now because the lead singer uh, passed away frightened rabbit who i love oh frightened rabbit 2000s. yeah 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 like late late 2000s early 2010s um these guys are very much in that vein they released a record, I believe it was definitely in the early 2010s. I want to say it was 2020 or 2013 uh, called The Dark, Dark, Bright that I loved. And I thought it was going to make them big and it just flopped. <laughs> and then they disappeared. And it was it, it's still like I think I ranked it in my top 50 favorite albums of last decade. But I just thought, you know, oh, they, they released their they put their heart and soul into this record. It didn't do well. And they just said, well, if that's not going to do it, then nothing will. We're done. 
Well, I'm on my way to the West Coast for a road trip at the start of this year. And I'm literally on the plane waiting for it to take off. And I see somebody tweet out like, there will be fireworks release their comeback album. <laughs> and I was like, all right, well, I guess I know what I'm listening to on this plane. And I spent the entire trip listening to it. And it's just, it's a very, it's definitely a little bit more on the accessible side than I usually get into. Like it is a an, an alt-rock record, even more so like an alt-rock, folk-rock type of record. But thematically, it just really hits me hard. Like it's very much just about this idea of like aging and looking back on your life and things like that. And it's kind of a perfect like mid-30s record thematically. Yeah. Plus it's, I love dramatic records. I love dramatic songs. I love like the kind of songs that like, you know, they swell and they burst and it's all emotion. I that That's extremely my shit. And this album is extremely that. Like everything is high stakes emotionally. And those are the records that I really latch on to. So that the new album of theirs is called Summer Moon. That was my number one of last year. Um, also really like the the Home is Where album called The Whaler. They're like a new fourth wave emo band. A um, lot of similarities to like early Modest Mouse in this album, which I really dug. There's fourth wave um, emo? There's That's a thing. Fourth wave. <laughs> it is. It sure is. Fourth wave emo. I, knew. I, could, give, I, I, yeah. I could give you guys a, a total breakdown of all the emo waves. Of <laughs> oh, I, we've, we've tried. Of, we've tried. No, with, there was a couple bands. So we had this, a couple, I think, a year or two ago. I remember chatting about it. With Corey and you, I think, as well, we're in it. Yeah. on like talking about some emo stuff because that was never really my jam but exactly, i did go back yeah. to some of the like was it like the washington like 90s stuff like like a little bit like i think fugazi is maybe kind of in there like sometimes but then jawbreaker yeah. was another band too that i like jawbreaker I, that i like, was, like real estate yeah, yeah so and i hadn't ever really listened i was like you know some of this stuff actually is like because i'm not a i'm not an emo guy and and I was going to say that I my last year was spent just only listening to jazz, which I, I it's kind of been the Love last like you. yeah I know I mean for <laughs> yeah I'm the only one who loves yeah that we're the only people I was joking we Josh I, Josh but we we he I think he had about fifty albums that we found or like because it's no, not I had easy to, it's not easy no, to find it's jazz a, records it's a long process of finding stuff that I can listen to for jazz but it was funny because I had like seventy five I had gotten up to like I think I went over like a hundred albums from last year that I was like kind of listening to on and off and kind of whittled down a list and I and I tweeted out my best because I was like laughing I'm like last year I'm pretty sure I got like 15 likes and then I've tweeted mine out and I got 15 likes again on my top like my top list and I was just laughing about it but um I think so was, these were wait what there was will the be fireworks. there will be fireworks and uh the who was the second band that you mentioned because I want to go check these out not Lana I, Del Rey home home is where home is, is the where. other band I'll check them um, out because I, I I find that I whenever you recommend stuff I always really enjoy it I I think the only thing I don't know did you hear about this band they're this they're a little bit more out there but it's kind of this avant folk like kind of like indie folk kind of outfit called Lancome uh, they had a record called False Lankum from last year. That the name I, sounds vaguely familiar. I definitely have not listened. But yes. the name the name sounds like something I may have come across. I, yeah, I love that record. That, but I'm that, like, yeah. it's it's very much in the kind of like drone folk um, type of tradition. It's Irish, and it's just that album was incredible. Yeah. I thought. But so I'm like, throw that I'm like, a, ring, but... you you drone on a fucking string for like ten minutes. <laughs> you get some other drones going. I'm gonna. I'm gonna eat that shit up. I like <laughs> one, one, one. One question I do have because I actually don't know if this is your style. It's really not my style, but I did dig this album. I'll, I'll get I'll get you to it in a second. Are you guys into like like '90s grunge alternative at all? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. I mean, okay. if it's so good, there, it's it's a fine line between that being very good and very bad. I I think so. <laughs> fair, fair. So there there's a, a an album by an artist called or her debut called Blonde Shell. It's just a self titled debut. Um, a lot of comparisons. It, it got to like Courtney Love, like Hole oh, okay. and that and that yeah. style. It's a short album, but it's got a lot of bangers. I, I'm a fan. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll have to. I mean, I'm, I always love talking to you about music, Charlie, because you already always have some great recommendations. Uh, I think I'm Luke. I already noted that in his R studio session right now. In in the you know in. <laughs> but no, I'm I'm just joking. Yeah, uh, in I my think, notes, my untitled script with all my notes in yeah, R studio. No, um, I think that we're we're probably I, we've already kept you longer than we said we were gonna you know kind of have you have you on. So I think we maybe would be a good point to time to edit. Sean, do you want to as our as our host? Do you want to want to take us out of here? <laughs> sure. Well, thank you for coming back on our first repeat guest, uh, Mr. Charlie O'Connor. Um, thank you for educating us about the Flyers. And good luck with all of the storylines that come down the second half of the season. Yeah, I'm 
definitely uh, happy to come on the show. And yeah. uh, if oh, you guys and ever want me to uh, to join again, I'd be happy to join yeah, again. Yeah, and Charlie, it's always get, a good time get, with get you guys. your plugs in. Where are you? Where can people find you? Where are you writing? You know, just anything you want to plug here. Yes. Yeah. And I actually am. I am in need of plugging because I'm trying to make this new venture work. Yeah. Um, so I obviously in uh, well, not obviously it would be obvious to people who cover the who follow the flyers, but not everyone listening does. Uh, I used to write for The Athletic. I made the decision over the summer to uh, to make a change. And I accepted a position at PHLY Sports. Uh, it's under the All City umbrella. If you're familiar with Craig Morgan, who covers the uh, the Arizona Coyotes, uh, formerly of the Athletic, he uh, covers the Coyotes now for the All City Phoenix uh, PHNX. Um, there, it, All City's in four cities now. Philly was the fourth. It's uh, Denver where it launched, uh, Phoenix, Chicago, and now Philadelphia. Uh, they kind of came with a compelling offer this summer, uh, a compelling vision as to what they want to build, which is, you know, very hyper-localized, in-depth coverage of Philly sports teams. And I, I made the jump. So I'm writing it. Uh, the website is now allphly.com, A-L-L-P-H-L-Y.com. Uh, but a big part of the venture is I now do a five-day-a-week podcast slash live stream show on YouTube in studio. So... That is, uh, you could find that, I guess, subscription at uh, PHLY underscore sports, I believe, is our, is our YouTube. And then obviously on all podcast platforms, our podcast is PHLY Flyers Podcast. Um, so definitely, if you are interested in uh, becoming a regular listener of a Flyers podcast, I would highly recommend you check out that one. Obviously, we have big uh, shows on the big thing. So we we had a big show on the Carter Gauthier trade. We've obviously broken down all this news surrounding uh, Carter Hart and Hockey Canada. But if you're a Flyers fan that just wants to hear daily updates and daily analysis on the Flyers, check out the show. If you're more of a reader, you can find my work now, not at The Athletic, but at allphly.com. Well, that's awesome. great. Well, everybody, I, I really highly recommend you check out Charlie's stuff. He's he's one of the best writers out there. He's been doing this longer than most people would, uh, you know, could. I, I actually don't think there's anyone really who's kind of still right, right in the way that you were. You yeah, know, uh, with the but, hockey stats, keeping the yes. hockey stats content yeah. going um, for, for as, lo as long. It's always always a pleasure to talk with you, Charlie. I was thinking this summer we might, uh, you know, maybe we should do a, an all music episode. I think it'd be fun <laughs> just to have some, just to I'd chat. Love to do that. Yeah, yeah, just chat about music, no hockey, and just kind of go into. Maybe kind of, you know, just talk, see what happens. I think that'd be a fun one. Maybe Sean, Sean could be on. I think Sean could. Yeah, he, Sean could, could. he could, uh, you know, <laughs> broaden his horizons. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, Charlie, we'll let you go here. Thanks so much for stopping by, and uh, yeah, thanks, I hope you, hope you take care. All right, sounds good. Thanks, everybody.